This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. From Hospice Chaplaincy and Audio Hive Podcasting Studios in Joliet, Illinois, this is the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And I'm Joe Newton. Our guest today is Beth Kavanagh, the author of the new book, Some Light at the End, Your Bedside Guide for Peaceful, Palliative, and Hospice Care. Beth, welcome to the show. Can you give us, uh, our listeners, a little background of where you grew up? Um, I grew up in Orange County, California, Fullerton, and that was about 15 minutes away from Disneyland, and it really felt like my childhood was kind of amazing. It was 70 degrees, sunny all the time. There were um, we had, there were five kids in our family, and we just kind of roamed. I roller skated everywhere and biked everywhere, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty peaceful existence. Who was your biggest influence as a child? Probably my mom. I mean, I she was around a lot of the time uh, when I was home, and she was just kind of the steady force of uh, quiet and wisdom and strength at the same time. And she was, she's one of those people that kind of faded into the background um, most of the time, but she was a really solid heart presence for, for me and for the house. Mm. Was your mom an influence in you going into nursing or was there something else? Um, No, she wasn't an influence at all. (laughs) We have um, no medical background, at least uh, in, in my immediate family. Um, it didn't even occur to me until I, uh, I worked in the Jesuit volunteer corps. It's a one-year, uh, volunteer program after college. And I worked in nursing homes and I was, um, like a therapy assistant. So I worked with, um, a psychiatrist and then a couple of us were just, you know, kind of, um, helpers with all the geriatric support groups. So we would, uh, we would take, um, patients to, Dairy Queen, and we would take them to ostrich farms. This was up in Auburn, Washington. Mm. And then we would come back and sit back and do like life re- life review. We would reminisce. A lot of it was to support um, geriatric patients who had depression or some kind of a diagnosis. And I just loved working in the nursing home. Uh, and that's actually, so it was, I was 23 and I'd already gone to college. And that's when I decided then to go back to school um, because everybody wants a second bachelor's and uh, <laughs> go back to nursing, you know, get my nursing uh, license. So how did your journey to end of life care officially begin? Um, that's a good question. I, I feel like it's kind of an ongoing series of awakenings, you know, in my life. Um, I wouldn't say it was one thing in particular. It was a lot of things. One of the most impactful, of course, was when my mom died from lung cancer. She died in 1998, and um, I was living up in Portland, Oregon at the time with my husband and my uh, my one-year-old, and she had been diagnosed for about 12 months. 
and uh, had done the chemo, radiation, the whole thing, and then decided she wanted to go on to hospice. And so she asked me to take care of her because I was the only medical professional in the family, you know, because I'd been a nurse for maybe a year and a half at that time. Hmm. And uh, so I went down and took care of her along with my other siblings and my dad. And, um, you know, it's a really heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching experience to take care of your mom, any loved one actually on hospice. I mean, you guys know you're in the hospice. You do hospice work all the time and you probably get the question, how Hmm. can you guys do this? It, it's very different when it's your own, you know, flesh and blood and beloved mom. So uh, for me to go through that experience and, um, you know, take her to the toilet, shower her, um, crush up her meds, administer suppositories, you know, just it was it was thick with medical stuff. And as her daughter, it just. You know, I feel like a lot of times my nursing knowledge just kind of went out the window because Mm -hmm. it was so close Mm -hmm. and personal. And I was with my mom when she breathed her last breath, which was a really profound spiritual experience for me. Um, So I, you know, that was the most impactful in terms of deciding to do end-of-life care. But like I said, I feel like it's an ongoing series of awakenings and and I've been in end-of-life care in a lot of different forms in the last 15 years. And, um, you know, now I've been writing a lot and I'm not sure what the next series of awakenings will be, you know, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> ongoing, right? But yes. like end-of-life care is just, uh, it feels like such a soft landing for me. It sounds, I mean, it was interesting to hear you talk about your mom and the experience you had with your mom. Uh you had to be the daughter. You didn't have to be the yeah. nurse. And then you, when you say you threw it all out the window, I mean, it's like when my dad died, I was not the chaplain. I was, right. the, I was, <laughs> I was the son. Right. And right. It, uh, it makes you think a lot about how it is that you do this work and, mm-hmm. uh, and how it is that you can help others along the way. And have you found stories like that where you've helped others in this type of thing where they're kind of like a little bit of a conflict. You know, you're, you have someone who's a nurse that, you know, feels like they can't do the nursing thing, but they feel guilty because they can't. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I never, I think once I have shared with a patient and their family that my mom died, but in the last 15 years, that is never a place that I go because I don't, I mean, personally, I don't feel like it is ever helpful. But in terms of like my colleagues and stuff, I mean, I think we empathize with each other that it's a really difficult uh, thing. You you have all these skills and um, clinical skills. You have amazing bedside skills and you walk in as a family. I mean, my family did really rely on me to do all of the nursing stuff. Oh, sure. They did not want to. <laughs> no, no. They did not want any any part of that. Mm-hmm. But um, But, you know they really do only see you in this one way, which was, you know, from the ages of zero to 18 when I lived at home. So. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, that's just being family and that's the understanding of which, how you grew up in your family structure. Uh, I had occasion the other day where I was with a family in a facility and Saul has heard the beginning of this story, but I'm asking you to reflect on it a little bit. 
I walk into the family, into the, into the room, having read our report from our uh, nurse who started a care nurse. And in the, in the report, it said, uh, we are considered to be extra help. And I read that, and I always make, take note of that because uh, right there it tells me that family is not discussed, end-of-life issues at all, and that they're afraid to, quite frankly. So I walk into this room, and the, uh, and the daughter is there. The patient is a 95-year-old man, and uh, he is a wonderful—I mean, he was a lot of fun to get to know. Uh, we talked faith. We talked baseball. We talked everything. And at one point, as I had, first off, as I walked in the room, I, I looked at the, at the daughter, and the daughter looked at me and said, we haven't told them yet. I said, I know. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. But I also said, if I've asked anything, I'm not going to not tell them the truth. Mm-hmm. And so we had our conversation, and everything was going along. And now all of a sudden, he looks at my, my badge. <laughs> and he said, who do you work for? And I told him the hospice I worked for. Mm-hmm. And I asked him then, do you know what hospice is? He goes, no. I said, okay, then I'll let your daughter explain it to you. Mm-hmm. As soon as I got up and had excused myself from our visit, I looked at the daughter and I knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I had a discussion with my supervisor or someone in the in our office yesterday saying, uh, sorry, but family doesn't want you to come back. And I'm like, and I explained the situation. They don't want that you to come back. They yeah. do not want me to yeah. come back because yeah. I was yeah. truthful. Yep. How do you deal with that? Oh, it's funny. I just wrote a, a blog post on veracity, truthfulness. I, I am like so into nursing ethical principles right now. I don't even know why. But <laughs> but I was, I've been thinking about this topic for the last couple of weeks. And um you know, nurses, our, our ethical principle is that, you know, we are supposed to tell the truth, even though it may cause distress, mm-hmm. because that is um, the basis for establishing trust, right, is honesty. And and if patients and family members realize that you are going to be honest with them and accurate, you know, there's so many ways we can do that gently, softly, sometimes over time. A lot of times you have to establish the trust first, you know, uh-huh. before you can fully disclose everything that's going on. But in order for patients who are um, who have decision-making capacity and are of sound mind, um, the only way they can make informed decisions about their care is by having accurate and honest information. So by omitting, by not disclosing um you know, we're doing them an injustice and mm-hmm. it really goes against every ethical nursing precept. So, um, so I deal with it gently and over time, I'll have, um, I'll tell the family that, you know, it's important because this gentleman who's 95, he is, has decision-making capacity and patient autonomy um, it's also, you know, truthfulness is the foundation of patient autonomy. Somebody to make their own decisions, um, regardless of what you think the decision should be, but make their own decision based on proper information. 
So um, I think just kind of being steeped in that awareness and how important it is. Um, but I get that all the time, Joe, mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Families don't want us to talk, say hospice. They don't want us to. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, um, <clears throat> depending on the circumstance, I mean, sometimes if there's dementia and if it's going to cause agitated behaviors and, you know, this, um, yeah, it just depends on a lot of the scenarios. But I think in general, um we can do it softly. And a lot of times it's also that the patient may not be ready for hospice at age 95. I mean, I think it's his choice to choose whether or not he wants to have hospice right now. But by establishing trust, that will also, like Joe, for you to go in the room and chat with this gentleman, uh-huh. um, may, maybe if you told him he was signing up for hospice and he said, I do not want any part of that, you know, no, uh-huh. I'm not going to do it, then that's okay. But you come back three months later, and he knows you're going to be truthful with him. And, you know, you have the conversation again. Mm -hmm. Oh, the interesting thing is that, you know, that unfortunately was not the case of me going in there, getting consents and talking about the whole program. Uh, And what I could gather is that the daughter who was watching me and also was part of the decision making, I don't think he was given the opportunity to make a decision if he wanted hospice or not. Right, I think the family, right. on the basis of what the doc told her, with his with his disease progression, that this was something that was would be very helpful for him because there's, right. you know, it's just time now. On the same line, um, your mom was sick and she was dying. You, as as a professional nurse, became the caregiver for your mother, and I think you have a lot to help us who are in hospice understand the stress families go through, mm-hmm. and uh, oh. sometimes. The stress is so much that even us, we do not understand. And that, that leads to moral injury. That leads to them even beginning to lie. Oh, mom, you're not on hospice. So can you tell us and help us understand that stress, how it was for you and how hospice team could help you better? Right. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I still ache for every hospice patient and family that actually have to do this at home because I I think most people don't have the proper support and meaning physical support. Um, I think it's really, it's a lot of labor. I was 28 at the time, so I was much stronger then. <laughs> and so getting her, you know, out of the bed and onto the commode or into the shower and stuff just, you know, wasn't really a thing, although I was still all sweaty and... <laughs> um, So there's so much physical labor that's required and so many tasks to do. So uh, my heart just aches for family because I know, you know, their job really should be just to grieve and be the family member and love them and sit by them and, you know, nourish them with like delicious ice cream milkshakes. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there's so many tasks to do. So I think just... uh, I think it's helpful when um, you can be relatable like that. Like, wow, this is this is really this is really hard, and I'm so so sorry that you have to go through this. Because also, as we know, everything that causes suffering and deep pain, there's also profound meaning. And um, you know, that's something I never regret is physically taking care of my mom because 
she never, I mean, we didn't have that kind of relationship. So the fact that she let me bathe her in bed, but it's mm-hmm. just like, I'm, it's 20 something years later. And I still like, my heart is warm, you know, because I had that kind of intimacy with my mom. Mm. Our guest is Beth Kavanagh, one of the thinkers in hospice and palliative care. Her book is Some Light at the End, Your Bedside Guide to Peaceful Palliative and Hospice Care. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation. Uh, Beth, could you give us the background of why you wrote this book? Um, well, there's a lot of reasons, like for everything for me, um, not just one. <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, being a hospice nurse, we do so much end-of-life education uh, to patients and families again and again and again and again and again. And a lot of it is, you know what morphine is going to do for your mom, what to do with constipation, what to do with anxiety, um, what hospice is, what palliative care is. And so we have the same questions. And, you know, you guys probably see it, or maybe you don't, but you're with the family member and you can see their eyes gloss over after you've been yammering on and on about, you know, whatever, that pain management techniques. And they just tune out after however long it was because you can only absorb so much information especially when you're in crisis right and it feels like hospice is a kind of a crisis time so um so i wrote this book because i wanted to provide um a beautiful bedside guide which i think it is a beautiful book and um and it has a lot of pauses in the book and i wanted people i just had this vision of people sitting at the bedside of their mom or dad or anybody and leafing through it at 3 a.m., you know, when they're like, God, what can I do about, um, you know, what will it look like when mom is going to die? Like, tell me what's the active dying process. Are there some rituals that we could do afterwards? Because people can't absorb all of this information about end of life care in one fell swoop. It's just a lot. And uh, so I just wanted them to have something they could access um, when they were ready. So hospices are familiar with uh, a little blue book. I won't mention the name. How different is your uh, material compared to that that almost every hospice patient gets in the country? Right, right. Um, I love her work. Um, I think she's amazing. Can we say her name out loud? Sure, sure. <laughs> Barbara Carnes. Right. Barbara Carnes. She's she's a legend. She's mm-hmm. a legend. And um, I love her work. Um, it's very simple and digestible for people. And I think that is what families like. Um, my, my book is... And it's about 11 pages long or something, the little blue book. Yeah. My my book is like 240 pages or something, but it has a lot of pauses in it. It has a lot of um, prompts in it um, that just 
people can leaf through it. It has information about hospice. It has information about not choosing hospice. It has information about IV fluids. It has all of the science, the, the pain and symptom management. So pain, how to manage medications, how to manage declining energy and mobility. So it's definitely like a, it, it's a chunkier book because it, it addresses um, more like if you're on hospice for, you know, a month and um, her little blue book is more about, you know, just the end. Of, she kind of um, provides you with a brief summary of how it's going to look. Mine's a little deeper. Mm. So I think just more knowledge is better, you know, and it, and it kind of alleviates people's anxiety. So that, that's the only way I, that's the reason I wrote the book because I just mm. want people to have information when they're ready to sure, have it. Sure. So, and it's really powerful. It's a scary topic. Yeah, no, yeah. the way you write is powerful. It's easy to understand. It's in depth. I was curious when you were describing the, the hospice team, and you had mm-hmm. these different images for the chaplain, the physician, the social worker, the volunteer. What is, you know, I love images and symbols. What is the rationale behind those images you put there? I, I think that the, um, the clouds and the sun representing the chaplain or spiritual counselor is um, just the illumination, the spiritual illumination that can occur. Mm. Um, Nurses, I think that was, you know, kind of a, that's a historic, the cross, the red cross, kind of an insignia. Nurse assistant, oh my God, the hand, they, I mean, the nurse's assistant, do you guys call them aides in your hospice? Do you call them mm-hmm. CNAs? Yeah, yeah, the CNAs, they are the hands-on magic, right? I yep. mean, they they know the patient, like the back of their hands, and I just feel like um, if everybody had the opportunity to have a CNA in their house three times a week, they should take it because, I mean, nobody feels better after a bed bath from a CNA. You know, when mm-hmm. nurses, when when I do it, actually, <laughs> when I try to give a bed bath, it's not as uh, as beautiful <laughs> and graceful as a nurse assistant. Volunteers, right? I mean, heart. They're like the most heart-centered people. They're, they're the, um, I gave my very first like public speaking engagement to hospice volunteers and they were just the most thoughtful um, group of humans that I could ever, I was terrified to give, to give a speech. And um, they just like made me feel so warm and soft and fuzzy. And, you know, I just, Oh my God, I love volunteers. Um, Bereavement coordinator. um, I don't know that it's a house and it almost looks like a puppy dog house. Now that I'm looking at it, you know, a while after I wrote the book, (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's for like being at home. Yes, that's what it was. It was just like being at home afterwards, after your loved one has died, how this is going to feel. Did you want me to go through each and every one of them? No, no, no. I just wanted to. Uh, <laughs> just checked on, no, uh, no, on, on the sun and the clouds. Yes. <laughs> no, I love, I love symbols and because they speak deeper. And I was, yeah. I never seen this. So when I saw this in your book, I'm like, that, that's quite interesting. And there's a yeah. story behind it. And the way you articulate yeah. it is really powerful. Uh, can mm-hmm. you talk to us? Uh, you know, hospice is a very tragic time especially for the family. There's a lot of mental uh, issues there, a lot of stress. So can you, you know, teach our listeners on strategies to, you know, to counteract the panic, the anxiety, and all that kind of stuff? 
Yeah. Um, well, so for the um, families who have panic and anxiety and dread, you know, I think just realizing that that's a normal experience and um, to kind of throw your expectations out. Um, I throw your expectations into the river. Like, you know, I had all these beautiful images of me and my mom talking about her death and hush tones and what she wanted after, you know, and she, no, she was not going to talk to me about any of that stuff. Mm. Um, so throw your expectations out, um, for the family, I think to, to mitigate anxiety, um, get a group of as many people as you possibly can to support you at this time. Um, shamelessly ask because a lot of people don't know how to help at the end of life. And um, you, you'll you need help with either relief at the home or getting groceries or something like that. Um, yes. This, I was going to say that's that, it's wonderful uh, encouragement to ask folks to do it. The other part is for them to do it. And, <laughs> and, and that's difficult because... Uh, us humans have this, as, as I've seen uh, all the time, I'm on, a, on every family I've been through, I don't mm-hmm. want to be a burden. I don't want right. to be a burden. Yep. How yep. can we get rid of that thought? Yeah. Uh, can I go back to that? Sure, please. After, after I do, because I like that question, um, just so I can solidify the anxiety question um, because that is really a big one, Joe. Um, So, and I think that it is hard to ask people and that's also part of the reason I wrote my book is so, because this is for, my book is for patients and caregivers, but I also, there's so many friends, right, that are involved in a loved one dying and when they have this book, they can pick it up and go, oh, like I should help out <laughs> with the laundry, with the grocery mm-hmm. store runs, with meal prep, with meal drop off. You know, it, it actually does give some substantial ideas about how to help somebody because I know it's really hard for patients to and families, family members to ask for help. Um, I just want it to be out in the universe, you know, that this time of life is like a birth. Mm. It's that's when people gather. I mean, it's a celebration on of the end of their life. Exactly. So let's get together and and form a group of angels around this person who's dying and let's help the family out. Um, and then in terms of anxiety for the patient, um, I think creating a calm environment is really important. I think utilizing the hospice team is really important um, because as you guys know, chaplains and social workers are incredibly skilled at addressing anxiety and can be very resourceful. Um, AIDS, the AIDS are really helpful in terms of eliminating the physical burden that a lot of the families have to experience just with showering and bathing and that type of thing. Um, Medications for anxiety management are really um, helpful. I feel like, you know, um, it's very common when, when everybody signs on to hospice, I mean, at least in the hospices I've worked at, we send at least a couple of Ativan, which is an anti-anxiety benzodiazepine. And um, so so it's expected almost that patients who are dying are going to be anxious. 
And I think knowing that is helpful. I think it won't take their anxiety away, their anxieties about whatever it is, fear of dying, fear of pain, just fear. Um, But it will give them some relief, which I think is really critical. So um, I, I really encourage people to at least try you know, some of the medications that are available to them um, because it won't, you know, it'll just give them maybe three hours of relief, which I think is important. Mm. Um, And I think having distraction techniques for anxiety, you know, um, taking for a walk, you know, just like movement, wheelchair, any of those kinds of things are really helpful. Um, Sitting with them, sitting with them, presence, as you guys know, presence is like there's, they have a lot of fear of being alone. So I think sitting next to their bedside and knitting or doing something that you, whatever, reading, typing on the computer, whatever you want to do so that the person just knows you're going to be there for a little while. You know, I think that's really equally important, just probably more important than Ativan. So <laughs> yeah, with that, we'll take a little break. Our, our guest is Beth Kavanaugh, the author of Some Light at the End. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sol and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Beth, I want to go back to what Joe uh, brought, the story Joe brought earlier about ethics at the end of life. When the, uh, the family doesn't want the patient to know that he's on hospice. Right. Uh, yes. Initially, although the daughter did say she was going to tell him on that day that I visited. Yes. So it is, so it, 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 that, that immediately creates some ethical issues. And Joe being the truthful man that he is, tells the patient, I'm from hospice. Could you shed some light on ethics? Because for me personally, I would be okay with t- telling that I'm not from hospice. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. because I look yeah. at, I, I'm more focused now on the stress of the caregiver, the family. Yeah. Instead, mm. the, yeah. So the caregiver then becomes my passion and I have to protect that caregiver. Can you shed mm-hmm. some light on those ethical mm-hmm. issues? Well, I mean, I think, you know, this is just like from the brain, the tiny little brain of Beth Kavanaugh. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's reason. I haven't haven't studied ethics or anything, but, um, you know, I I think that I, I know that I have definitely not uttered the hospice word for patients and families because that was, that's what they wanted. And, um, but I do, I, I kind of felt a little bit dirty, you know, I, I think that, uh, <laughs> I think that, so I think that establishing trust over time is huge. So I think if the family says, hey, don't use the word hospice and you say, okay, but you know, you can have the side conversation. Like, you know, if somebody has decision-making capacity, it's really important to tell them the truth. So we'll have ongoing conversations about it. And, you know, at some point we should talk about it because, (laughs) you 
know, I think it's a disadvantage for the patient to... It, I mean, know. morally, you're right. It is a disadvantage. But right now, the caregiver is the patient. Yes, yes. I feel yes. dirty, but I feel comfortable feeling dirty for the caregiver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe. Yeah. No, I know. I know. I know. It's complicated. It's like, I mean, but but this work is is deep, mired in ethical issues, right? The, the daughter in my mind is, is making decisions for a father who can still make some decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, he has given her power of attorney, but that mm-hmm. doesn't take away his ability to know and to, uh, to mm-hmm. be given all the information. Mm-hmm. 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 And to me, for that daughter to withhold that information is inappropriate. Right. Uh, certainly, she knows her father more than I do. Right, right. And understands his, how he would react possibly. And, you know, she yeah. doesn't want to upset him. I understand that. I understand that. Right. You don't want to understand it. But you know as well as I do. Come on now, Beth. You walk into a patient, and they're saying, don't talk about it. But they know they're dying. Without even yeah, saying yeah. a word. Yeah. And, I mean, that's the same thing that was written for that 106-year-old woman I talked to you about at the break. They mm-hmm. have on the sheet there that, not to be told that we are just extra help. Well, son of a gun, mm-hmm. I'm her hospice chaplain, and yeah. she knows me and what I do. So what? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't say a word. She so, knew already funny. by just me yeah. coming in the room and telling her I'm, so I'm here to visit funny. you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Family, families are complicated. Family dynamics are oh, complicated. Absolutely. So as an expert in hospice and palliative care, how do you encourage hospice teams to maneuver that scenario? Some are like Joe, are comfortable to stick with the truth no matter what, which mm-hmm. is good. It builds that honesty. It builds mm-hmm. that consistency. Mm-hmm. Others are like me, <laughs> <laughs> who are comfortable going with the lie until yeah. the lie. <laughs> yeah. I've never yeah. heard him talk like this before. I love it. I love it. So oh, yes. <laughs> how should we maneuver this? Well, I mean, I always, I, I'm so bad. I call on the chaplains, you know, (laughs) when we've got ethical issues like this. So I call the chaplains, the social workers, get the medical director involved, you know, if they're, if there feels like it's a clunky ethical um, issue Um, or, and some hospices have ethicists, you know, who are professionals at these things. Um, So I, I would collaborate with the team and and have it be an ongoing approach to revealing the truth. I mean, that's what I would do. It just it may not it, it can be done gently over time. Mm. You know. I think that's the right perspective because there's a reason why the lie was created. But yeah. eventually you can help the creator of that story to slowly break down that lie and reveal the truth because at the place of truth, there's really true healing. And right. Yeah. Yes. And a question. That's, and I it, mean, that's the most important thing, right? It's healing. Yes. And the question is, for all and people there are, 
if you don't tell the truth, are you going to regret it? Right. And, or and if you tell anybody, the truth, and you anybody, know, you know, and and I know that I try to impress upon families that when we have family discussions, uh, you really don't want your loved one to die with a bunch of with you having a bunch of regrets, and that mm-hmm, means mm-hmm. the individual person of saying, well, you know, uh, going up and just confessing their sins, per se, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, asking mm-hmm. for forgiveness, uh, mm-hmm. giving forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know all those things that that help make that to make that patient, your loved one, feel the presence of of the holy of the whole thing about comfort. Right. right. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know I think some people would probably regret being so open and honest with their parents about or whoever being on hospice. You know, so so I, I think even though it is the truth. Um, I I had a friend who um, her mom had COVID and um, she was in a nursing home and she didn't tell her mom. And she, she, just because there was a lot of things happening, like they just found out she had COVID, she was in with her and she had to get out of there as soon as she could because, oh my God, mom had COVID. And so she, you know, left and then she called me and she said, I regret that I didn't tell my mom she had COVID because that would give her the opportunity to understand that this could be, you know, the end of her life. She's like Mm -hmm. 98. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I said, you know, sometimes I think things just in hospice, things just work out as they do a lot of times. I mean, you just, you know, I think you just have to be okay with it's messy, right? There's nothing black or white about end of life. I mean, Mm. it is messy. It's clunky. It's awkward. It's confusing. It's mired in ethical dilemmas. Um, so I, I told her, I said, I think whatever happened, you're a very honest person, whatever happened, happened. You just have to be okay with it. If she dies, not knowing she had COVID, that's okay. Like, that's okay. It just is. So, I mean, I just, I feel like she goes, oh my God, thank you. You like relieved me of all the guilt that I've been feeling. So there we go. That's right. And that's part of what that whole thing is, is relieving one of the guilt. So there's building <laughs> openness, there's building honesty. I believe and, so. And, uh, so, Beth, you've written this amazing book. I think it brings a good addition to hospice care. Uh, could you just give our listeners why they should get your book? Um, I, you know, I wrote it for, uh, it's actually written to a patient who's been diagnosed with a terminal illness because um, I feel like they are, you know, they're the star of this show. And I feel like they are the ones who need the information and the tools to make decisions about how they want the end of their life to be. But um, every step of the way, I wrote it with the caregivers and friends in mind because just, you know, seeing them at the bedside kind of in this unknowing place and fearful place, I wrote it to provide them with information about really practical pieces to caring for your loved one at the end of your life. Um, So I just hope that it can be a resource that they can use at any time, either before somebody signs on to hospice or during. Mm, It is a fantastic book. To me, it feels almost like a love letter. Uh, You know, people think of love letters differently. But when you're going through the final stages, this, you need this. 
closer to mm-hmm. your heart. You need the knowledge mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. wisdom. I agree. Closer to your heart. So what are your final thoughts? Thank you so much for saying that. That actually really warms my heart because it, it does feel like it's a love letter to patients who are dying. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, it's a really scary, isolating place when you are at the end of your life. And um, I wanted this to accompany them on their journey and feel like they had a friend with them Yes, uh, that can that will disclose, you know, whatever they want when they're ready. Um so I, I, yeah, I guess, I guess that's what I want to say is thank you. And thank you guys for um, interviewing me. It was really fun. I hope we can meet sometime and have a cup of coffee or brewski or whatever you guys do in Joliet, Illinois. <laughs> Any final thoughts? A brewski. Well, you know, yeah, you're, you're, it sounds like you're trying to be from the Midwest with that terminology. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it is, uh, it's a delight to have met you. It really is. Yeah, and, uh, I'm a big, as you can tell, I'm a very passionate person about hospice. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it is... We have to be, don't we? Oh, you definitely do. And, and and I think what hopefully this book will also lend for people to understand is uh, end of life is so unique for each individual family and person. And mm-hmm. that it will help people mm-hmm. ease into the discussion. Because mm-hmm. yes. everybody needs to talk about this subject, whether they... Right whether it's a comfortable or uncomfortable, because it's going to happen to all of us at some point. Right. Which is probably why you guys do the work, this work, right? Is just to get the information out there in the universe. So yes. And then you're told not to come not back. Uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you nobody will tell you not to come back on this podcast. So, so well, thank God for that. <laughs> thank you, Beth. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. Blessings to you, Beth. Yeah, thank you. Mm. That was Beth Kavanagh, the author of Some Light at the End. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, visit us at audiohivepodcasting.com.